millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. everybody and welcome back to another year of the Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much and I apologise I've been away for a few days or a couple of weeks in point of fact so there hasn't been uh, any podcast updates over Christmas but um, we're going to really get back into it with some exciting new stuff now in the new year. Okay, so before we get started on uh, today's um, podcast, a few little bits of uh, info for you. Firstly, you can check out my new guest blog in the Huffington Post. I look for Nick Shepley under Huffington Post UK. I'll be talking about um, history, teaching, and a a few other things that I'm involved in. Um, There is also um, a a monthly uh, review podcast we've uh, got finalised with IB Taurus, our kind donator of books, and just so you know, in the interest of transparency, um, they are not <laughs> donating me any money, which is, you know, a bad thing, but hey, hey. Um, and um, this is going to start at the end of this month, hopefully with um, a review of some British history um, titles. So we're going to be looking at some British history uh, in a moment. Um, on the Thorny topic of money, uh, we are a pay-as-you-feel service here and explaining history, so um, the content is all absolutely free in every regard and uh, independent of uh, anyone else, but uh, donations would help the annual running of the podcast uh, immensely. There have been some incredibly kind and generous people um, who've uh, donated in the past, um, but obviously anybody who is able to um, uh, help with the cost of um, hosting particularly, um, we'd love to hear from you. And you can drop me a line at info at Explaining History if you're able to contribute anything. But if not, don't worry about it. Um, just enjoy the podcast. Anyway, the thing that I want to talk today um, about is a really curious uh, period of time in Britain uh, from the mid-70s really up to the end of the 1980s and it's uh, the relationship between pop music and radical politics and how the two come to be entwined. Now um, the moment of radicalization uh, of uh, pop music um, particularly 
in the 1970s was brought out brought about by alcoholic blues legend Eric Clapton. Um, it's a moment that's gone down in British pop culture uh, history, but it has a, a significant um, subtext, a significant backdrop to it. Um, in August 1976, on the 5th of August, at the uh, Birmingham Odeon, um, Clapton came on stage drunk and uh, began a lengthy tirade against black people um, and uh, other immigrants into um, the UK. Um, he uh, reeled off all sorts of horrendous racist language that I won't repeat here, um, though you know you can find the full uh, transcript of what he said. Um, he essentially said that he was uh, emigrating and that um, Enoch Powell um, had been, uh, who had obviously been the key political figure in uh, Birmingham some eight years previously. Um, he made his uh, inflammatory uh, Rivers of Blood speech um, that he claimed that Enoch Powell was a visionary uh, and a man who should be listened to. Now it was this moment that um, galvanised uh, activists uh, to um, write to that uh, bastion of um, music uh, taste and uh, analysis, uh, the New Music Express, the NME, um, and to uh, demand that action was taken against racism in music. Now, you've got to imagine the, the, the context um, of uh, British race relations in the mid-1970s. I mean, had there been um, a, uh, had there not been a, a far-right movement in the 70s, had there not been violence uh, against uh, black and Asian people in the 70s, and what Clapton had to say would probably have been uh, forgotten. But the, the bigger contextual picture was the rise of the National Front in Britain, the uh, fascist organisation um, that uh, kind of eventually morphed into what nowadays is the British National Party, many of whose members um, have now joined UKIP. The period of economic crisis that Britain had been undergoing, undergoing since the mid-1960s, um, as the world economy slowed down um, and certainly went into crisis after the uh, uh, oil crisis in 1973. Um, but Britain had been um, underperforming due to um, low investment, poor management, uh, uh, desperately bad industrial relations, um, and uh, a you know, the progressive relative economic decline um, that had been ongoing since really the 1950s. Um, this all created um, a, a, a backdrop for racial violence and racial tensions um, as uh, immigrants from the um, former uh, empire um, had were now uh, being blamed for the rising unemployment of the 1970s. Of course, they had uh, nothing to do with it whatsoever. And in, in fact, 
their immigration to Britain had been actively encouraged, indeed, by Enoch Powell himself, who believed that um, the transport network would be ably served by uh, black and, and, and Asian immigrants, while obviously white workers would do far superior work um, in, in his view. So um, the, there is a, a kind of a mixture of factors that meet in the mid-1970s that fuel uh, racial tensions, racial animosities and, and the far right. Um, and you see really, what you're seeing really is this kind of uh, embattled and um, threatened white working class that's really been threatened not by black and Asian people um, and their perceived um, ability to work for lower wages, but by um, the the forces of really of globalisation that are Im- impinging on Britain, uh, Britain had continued after the end of the Second World War to consider herself a country that was really uh, above these considerations of um, one that could uh, indefinitely go on with uh, high state spending, a declining uh, economy, and large expensive overseas commitments, uh, and not wind up. Um, facing uh, economic crises such as the um, such as devaluation or the the IMF uh, bailout that happens in 1976, and it's it's this kind of shuddering realization that Britain isn't immune to um, you know the, the cold winds of global recession, and that Britain isn't as she was a hundred years beforehand. It was a freelance photographer for the Sunday Times, Red Saunders who first wrote uh, into the NME and demanded that something be done and received uh, quite a, an enormous response um, and founded a group called Rock Against Racism. This was, in seventy six, just at the beginning of punk, um, one of the first and most significant uh, contributors to Rock Against Racism, a relatively unknown group at the time, but but seemed to be reached global superstardom with a clash. The interesting thing uh, about this, and the reason why I'm talking about it, and it's not a sort of a, a small and irrelevant historical footnote, is the, the combination of rock against racism, and then a year later the development in 1977 of the Anti-Nazi League, uh, became a, a mass movement in, in Great Britain. Um, in uh, 1978, um, 80,000 people uh, met at Trafalgar Square, for example, to protest against the rise of the far right. Um, if you imagine that uh, in 1936 at the Battle of Cable Street, you're looking at roughly an equivalent number of, of protesters um, something about a hundred thousand, uh, you know, official statistics vary. Um, there are um, interesting in in numbers alone certain parallels. Um, when in his history um, on the subject, Dominic Sandbrook um, wrote about the anti-Nazi League and particularly its associations with the Socialist Worker Party. He argued that the um, the anti-Nazi League were uh, really attempting to emulate the the great and glorious Battle of Cable Street when Oswald Mosley's black shirts were chased off the streets by 
uh, anti-fascist protesters. Um, whether this is the case or not, I don't know. However, obviously it's, it's difficult to uh, emulate such things because you're existing in, in very different historical circumstances. Oswald Mosley, of course, um, was uh, marching through the Jewish East End of London at the same time that uh, Hitler was uh, passing anti-Semitic laws in, in Germany. So, so it is a really very different um, set of affairs to the events, anti-Nazi street battles in 1978 um, the, against uh, the National Front, who uh, had you know, fascism in 1978 has nowhere near the power and significance it has in Europe in 1936. But of course, with all these movements, they're always wrapped up with a, a high degree of romanticism, and that's perhaps to be uh, slightly um, expected. Rock Against Racism, as the uh, late 70s um, progressed, um, becomes interested in a variety of issues, um, such as the uh, ongoing uh, uh, involvement of Great Britain in Northern Ireland during the the Troubles in Northern Ireland, um, the apartheid regime in South Africa, and the civil war in uh, Rhodesia, then Zimbabwe, and the um, finally um, the whole political scene on the um, anti-racist radical left is turned on its head by the emergence in 1979 of Margaret Thatcher. Now, you can safely say about Margaret Thatcher, irrespective of where you stand uh, on the subject of her legacy, she's nothing if not polarising. And for the anti-Nazi League and Rock Against Racism um, and the, uh, the fellow travellers of, of that, uh, that movement, um, their politics spread out really from being single-issue campaigning over the subject of anti a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Racism. Um, towards um, a, a much broader uh, resistance, uh, cultural resistance, 
um, to the, the uh, monetarist and uh, neoliberal economic and social policies of Margaret Thatcher. Throughout the movement, a, a broad um, sense of um, tolerance of a whole range of different lifestyles, um, questions of uh, class, uh, gender, um, race and, and sexuality are, are, are brought up. I mean, one good example of that would be uh, Tom Robinson, the, the Tom Robinson Band and their uh, Tom Robinson's anthem, Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay. Um, which was the, the first uh, song um, which was explicitly um, uh, explicitly discussed homosexuality uh, in any positive light at all. Um, it's interesting, uh, from, from then on you get, a, in actually throughout the 1980s, you get a, a generation of artists who are able to be uh, kind of open, openly gay. Many of them on the left, for example, the Communards and Jimmy Somerville. And for a, a decade which was not marked by its tolerant attitudes towards sexuality, um, the, you, you do get this profusion of pop acts and performers that explicitly talk about it and do it very well and sell an awful lot of records. Now, one of my Christmas reads, and the reason I'm talking about this, has been Daniel Rachel's Walls Come Tumbling Down, which is a fascinating book, uh, on this entire period, and one of the things that he argues is that for the first time ever, um, the uh, mixture of pop and politics um, comes together, that, that this hadn't really existed in British popular culture beforehand. Well, I actually think this is valid. I've talked before on this podcast um, about John Lennon in the early 70s and his attempts at um, social activism um, but most of that was done in America it was fairly short-lived um, and it was not really emulated by anyone else um, in any high profile or meaningful way across the um, across the industry you have a far greater incidence of activism in America Throughout the 1960s, kind of petering out in the 1970s as the, sort of the, the hippie moment dies. Uh, but the anti-racist movement that morphs into a kind of a more broader left um, association between pop music um, and politics um, really emerges in, in this particular time period. Now, one thing to talk about when we're talking about pop and politics uh, in the 1980s is obviously Live Aid. Live Aid um, presented itself, I suppose, really as a kind of a largely non-partisan, uh, non-partisan event. Uh, you have, for example, prominent Tories such as Phil Collins, um, and of course um, Queen uh, appearing uh, on, at the event. Um, so it was hardly a kind of a meeting of the radical left, um, but there was obviously from Bob Geldof, implicit criticism of um, Margaret Thatcher and of the uh, policies of the Thatcher government uh, towards Africa, the Third World uh, and, and aid. The extent to which really the audience was in any way politicised is, is highly doubtful. I mean, as, as with many of these things, people go along to, uh, to see a good show um, and the uh, global, the, the sort of the sensation of 
of uh, the sensationalism of having a kind of a global event of this nature um, and the use of, tech, of satellite technology to link up events in America uh, and Great Britain was obviously, obviously very novel. Um, the sort of naivety, really, around aid at that time and about what could be achieved and about how much um, sort of uh, public altruism uh, in Britain and America and the wealthy world could really uh, bring about meaningful change in countries like Ethiopia um, was very much of, of, its, of its moment and uh, surrounded by uh, a great deal of ignorance on that. Um, I want to talk actually about Live Aid on its own in, in greater depth at another time. Um, so I'm not going to go too deeply into that one right now. But what I want to talk about in addition to this is the emergence of Red Wedge, um, which was just the kind of the final thing I'm going to discuss in this podcast. Red Wedge was uh, one of the first um, explicitly uh, partisan um, aspects of the, the kind of the, uh, the left and um, British pop music, um, a coalition of musicians uh, pre- predominantly featuring Billy Bragg, um, back the Labour Party um, in the early to mid-1980s. Um, it was slightly predated um, by the uh, development in 1979 of the group The Specials. Specials um, found, founded in Coventry by Jerry Dammers, who was an explicitly socialist uh, musician and uh, record producer um, who wanted to create a, a fusion of black and white music and create a uh, a, a group where both black and white people appeared on the stage. Up until that point, there had been this kind of concern that uh, black and white groups shared the stage, but never together and never united as one. And uh, the specials were, ex- uh, as a scar uh, band, explicitly meant um, to be that. Um, the specials' uh, big hit was Ghost Town. Um, which was a, a kind of a, a visceral condemnation of Margaret Thatcher's Britain, um, and uh, it was a uh, a protest song against unemployment and the the uh, uh, effect of monetarist economic policies um, on Britain's young people and the kind of the spiralling uh, mass unemployment of the early nineteen eighties, which, which uh, uh, rivaled and even in some instances eclipsed that of the 1930s. Um, so the the um, importance of Ghost Town can't be understated, particularly on uh, on the British left. The Falklands War in uh, 1982 and the miners' strike in 1984 again are, are two moments where pop music becomes politicised. Um, for example, if you look at uh, the work of Elvis Costello. Um, song Shipbuilding, uh, a protest song which uh, depicts um, the shipbuilding sound, uh, towns uh, of the northeast of England creating warships in order to go and you know, essentially fight uh, a war for um, the, the powers that be. Um, and the work of Billy Bragg as well um, that, um, um, that developed really as a result of the, the miners' strike. And, as I mentioned before, Billy Bragg and the uh, leader, lead singer of the former group uh, Jam, uh, Paul Weller, 
um, were the founding members of Red Wedge, which was a, a kind of a coalition of artists who were uh, dedicated to ousting Margaret Thatcher from office uh, in the, the next um, uh, general election. Red Wedge also contained, was um, joined by uh, actors and activists, filmmakers, comedians, the, uh, frin- the radical fringe of uh, 1980s stand-up comics like Alexi Sale and Ben Elton and, and, and people like that um, who were considered uh, very daring and cutting edge at the time um, to, um, uh, to support uh, the, the uh, Labour Party uh, in the 1987 general election. In 1987, Red Wedge uh, conducted uh, tours of marginal constituencies um, headlining um, small town halls and um, local working men's clubs and things like that with um, musicians, comedians and uh, filmmakers and actors and the, um, the great and the good of the, 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 kind of the, the British cultural left. But it's what happened after the election that really matters, sadly. The um, Conservative Party were returned on a uh, massive mandate. The uh, most austere aspects of monetarism were being uh, abandoned by the mid-1980s um, by Nigel Lawson, who generated a huge and ultimately a, a sustainable boom. By 1987, uh, there was uh, appeared to be a significant amount more prosperity in, in the country. And when Labour were defeated again, not all of the lessons uh, of Red Wedge were abandoned or ignored. In fact, a a new young PR director for the party, Peter Mandelson, um, saw the degree of cultural engagement that people like Paul Weller and Billy Bragg had brought about for Labour and saw that there was something really quite valuable in it. Mandelson was happy to abandon the politics and follow a uh, a broadly uh, similar economic model to Margaret Thatcher. But um, ten years later, when it was Labour's moment to sweep to power in 1997, um, embracing all aspects of cultural policy and embracing fellow traveller musicians, the likes of Damon Albarn or Noel Gallagher or whoever else you could get into number 10 for champagne and canapes, um, but not politics, um, was uh, a, a key part of, uh, of Labour strategy. So much so that um, on the eve of the, uh, the next general election, um, the Labour Party approached um, the uh, author J.K. Rowling, uh, author of Harry Potter, and actually asked, amazingly, whether Harry Potter would become a new Labour mascot, whether they could own the rights to uh, Harry Potter. Um, so that shows you how far politics um, had, had gone by the end of the millennium and in terms of seriousness, shall we say. Okay, well, I've gone on for long enough. Um, Walls Come Tumbling Down is a great read. I entirely recommend it. And uh, the reason, again, why is because it helps to fill in this really interesting and and little understood 
period in, in British political and cultural history uh, when ordinary people, um, far from the kind of the, the megastars of, of the music industry, your, your Freddie Mercury's, your David Bowie's aren't really getting involved in this one. Fairly ordinary people um, took responsibility um, to unite and organise uh, against um, racism in Great Britain, um, albeit with mixed results. Anyway, um, look forward to speaking to catching you all on the next Explaining History podcast, um, and I hope you all had a great Christmas and New Year, and here's to uh, hopefully uh, uh, a trauma-free 2017. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.